Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. It is a joy to be part of the family of God. And as we've sang all morning about what it means to be called His family, His children, brothers and sisters in Christ... I encourage you that if, if you don't know what that means to be part of a family of God, you don't know what it means to call someone else your brother or your sister in Christ, let today be the day that you come to Christ in faith, and then we'll talk about what that means to be part of the family of God. And that's what we're going to discuss today in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 15, men and women and the family of God. I bet you never thought you would hear a sermon begin with a quote by Gloria Steinem, the feminist philosopher and leader of the late 60s and 70s, but in this, I think we can all agree. A feminist is anyone who recognizes the equality and full humanity of women and men. And we say, well, I think I agree with that, right? The, the equality and the dignity and the value of women and men. Amen. We can all agree to that, right? But, but what has happened to that? And that the culture and the society around us have changed not just equality, not just value, not just dignity, But they've changed the whole meaning of the words into which really men and women are the exact same. In recent years, our society tells us there's really no difference at all. Gender itself, they say, is a, quote, social construct. Get this part, though. Gender is a social construct invented by men to keep power. And, of course... We decry motherhood and gender and gender differences and gender roles until it comes to something such as abortion rights when all of a sudden everybody remembers who women are and what mothers are and who does all this, right? We have such confusion in our culture about gender and sexuality and male and female. And of course, it's all contrary to God's word, which shows us, as we just said, men and women are equal in value and dignity. But the word of God also shows us distinctions in roles and what God has called us to do. Paul, not dealing with the same issues that we deal with, but dealing with his own social, cultural issues with Timothy and the church at Ephesus, he wants to remind Timothy these differences matter. The family matters. And that role and that design for the church matters. Look at what Paul says to Timothy here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. I desire then 
that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to make you say it today. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to dive into this today, and I ask you to remember this is the inerrant, infallible, and the inspired word of the living God. Number one today, in the family of God, men lead in holiness. Men lead in holiness. Look at verse 8 again. First of all, Paul says, first of all, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting hands without anger or quarreling. Building off of last week's theme of praying for all people, especially those in authority, pray that we would have peaceable, dignified lives so that we can share the gospel. Paul builds on this theme of prayer, and now he goes first at the men. Men of the church, this is your tool. This is your weapon. I want you to pray. Church research after church research after poll after poll proves that if you're going to win the family to Christ, typically you must first win the man. If you're going to see revival in a church or in a nation or denomination or movement, typically it will begin with the men, specifically when the men pray. God created man, listen, uniquely not exclusively, but uniquely as leader, as protector. This is not to exclude women from leading or to exclude women from serving, but it starts with men. It starts in the home with men. It starts in the church with men. It's unique in that way to men. It's rooted in God's own revelation of himself. Now, God is not a man with flesh and bones. He is not a man in that sense. He's not a created being with a gender as you and I are. But he has revealed himself in Scripture in those terms. He has revealed himself, if we can say it in our social construct way today, he has revealed himself using masculine pronouns. If God were to introduce himself in the craziness that is our world today, he would say, hi, I'm God. He, him are my pronouns. Now, it's interesting, I find, in churches that are trying to screw around with God's pronouns and say it should be inclusive or they or she or whatever it is, these are the same people that say you should, in fact, respect someone else's chosen personal pronouns, right? But when God reveals himself as he, him, father, husband, we somehow find that offensive. But it's how God has revealed himself. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, he reveals himself to Israel your maker, God, I am your husband. He uses this imagery of a husband caring for his bride with Israel. 
What does he say to the church? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his church. Even as Christ is the head, the husband is the head, Christ is the head. God has revealed himself in this way to us. And in a world that hates and rejects this, church, listen, we must love this. Men, your family needs this. Men, your family needs you to step up and lead your family, to lead in your church. In Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, where did God go first? Eve listened to the serpent. Eve was deceived, and then Adam. But where did God come first? Adam, where are you? Where does God go first here today in our passage? Men. God wants men to pray. God wants men to be holy. And he asks you men today, First Baptist Church men, he asks you, where are you? And then Paul asks, well, how can men best lead? And Paul begins with prayer. Remember last week we talked about how prayer is where we start. First of all, pray for all people. Not a last resort, not the last ditch effort, not the final option, not the last straw. Prayer is where we start. So when he encourages men to lead first by praying, it's not as if there's some sort of demotion going on there. You need to start with what is most important. Start by praying. And men, he tells you to start with a posture of personal holiness. He says, pray, lifting holy hands. Now, This is more than just a physical posture of prayer. This is an acceptable posture of prayer and praise. We see in the Bible routinely a command to lift your hands to the Lord. And uh, although our, our modern forms look more like this or like this, those are fine. Typically the ancient form would have been open hands here, praying, giving yourself, offering yourself to the Lord. But it's more than the physical posture of your hands. Paul is pointing to the spiritual posture of the heart. I think it'll make sense as you hear these commands from the Old Testament, such as Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can enter his holy place? You know this, right? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Sure, there were the ceremonial washings and all that that symbolized, but they were just pictures of what? The cleanness and the purity of the heart. In Psalm 26, verse 6, he says, I wash my hands in innocence. I wash my hands in innocence. So we see that it's more than just the physical cleanliness of the hands. It's more than just the physical uplifting of the hands, although that's okay. Good Baptist people, it's okay to lift our hands to the Lord in prayer and praise. It's more than that, though. It should be a reflection of a clean heart of a purified life, living in purity and holiness, morally, ethically, in the middle of a world that is lost and dark, separating ourselves from that. Think about it in this context. How does the world define what it means to be a man? How does the world define masculinity? Well, it's shown to us everywhere, isn't it? In a sexual overdrive, Strength, 
pure brute strength, brawn? Is that how the world defines manliness and masculinity? Yes, is it how God defines masculinity? No. Maybe as we were reading, you know, we, we had verse 8, and that dealt with men, and I'm dealing with men, but maybe once we got to the middle of the verses and we were dealing with the women issues, uh, you got stuck on that and you forgot about God saying this to men here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, when, when God is giving the curse to the male and the female, Adam and Eve, after the fall has occurred, he says to the woman, I'll greatly multiply your, chain, your pain in childbirth. And your desire, he says, will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. That part of the ramifications of the fall are that there will be pain and childbirth for the woman. We'll get there later. But that the authority that God gave to the man as the leader, he will usurp it and use it in a domineering, lording way over his wife, over other people. So we see this concept in the world and in nature of the alpha male. The one trying to be the best, trying to be first, trying to be noticed, trying to be recognized, flexing our strength and our power. Paul rejects that as manliness. The Bible rejects that. As manliness. In fact, he says it here in verse 8. I want you to pray, lifting up holy hands to the Lord without anger and quarreling. Not boastful, not proud, not domineering. As opposed to the curse of the fall, you will rule over her. Not that. Humility, love, service, praying for all people, leading your homes with love. Leading in your churches with service, and in all things leading in holiness. While the world pictures manhood with chest beating and sexual domination, or, in our sense, rejects it altogether, there's no such thing as manhood or womanhood or this gender or that gender. As the world rejects this, men of First Baptist Church, the question is for you. What does God require of you? He requires you to lead in prayer, to lead in holiness, to lead in your homes, and to lead in your church. And the first place, men of the church, you can start is by getting your priorities in order. It starts with you. It starts in your home. It starts with your children, or maybe your grandchildren, or maybe just your spouse. It starts with you. God starts with you. Adam, man, where are you? Number two, women model godliness. In verse 9, you see Paul begins this section with the word likewise. Likewise tells us, just as I address the men, I now want to address you women. Just as the world has contaminated what it means to be a man, it has also twisted what it means to be a woman. Now listen to the hypocrisy of the world around us that props up what was called the Me Too movement, decrying sexual abuse, 
rightly so, decrying sexual and domestic violence, rightly so. But that same world also sexualizes our women and sexualizes our young girls. And the process gets earlier and earlier and earlier through ads, through clothing, through marketing, through music, through entertainment. So on one hand, we decry sexual violence and domestic violence, rightly so, and on the other hand, in our society, we prop it up. We decry and we punish sexual predators, and so we should, while that same society also peddles pornography and sex and sensuality as if it was just a commodity to be sold and traded. We sell it everywhere, but then we spurn, listen, even the natural consequences in reproduction. We sell the sex without the responsibility. And just as Paul calls man to godly masculinity, he now calls women to model godliness. And he begins here in verse 9, Likewise, also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now let's just spend a, a little bit of time on the words. Respectable apparel can sound like, you know, well, I'm respectable. And so I wear respectable clothes from respectable stores. Not what Paul means. This word means decent and virtuous. Women, let your apparel be what is decent and virtuous with modesty. And this is more than just what covers and what is left uncovered, though that's important. But it says with shame. That's the word. With shame, not sinfully seductive. And then he says with self-control. That's interesting, isn't it? We're talking about clothes. Paul, I thought we were talking about clothes. And now you're talking about what is respectable, decent, and virtuous. You're talking about what is with shame and what is modest. And now you throw in self-control in there with soberness or sobriety, self-control. That's directly contradictory to the world, isn't it? The world says what is not decent, what is not virtuous. The world says have no shame. The world says have no self-control. And so the world forces on our young women and on our women, all ladies, be sexual, be seductive, be sinfully appealing. Draw attention to yourself, to your body. Engage in looseness and drunkenness. And I love this biblical word, licentiousness. It just means a license to sin. Just do what you want. Do what feels right to you. Who cares? There are no consequences. This is what the world pushes. But Paul says, adorn yourselves with decency, with virtue, with shame. Not sinfully seductive, but with all self-control. And now we begin to see, we're not just talking about clothes, are we? Sure, clothing is a part of this, and we could have a whole workshop with women and, and all this stuff. That's great. That's wonderful. Churches harp on this stuff, right? Uh, women don't wear pants, and you don't cut your hair, and you don't wear makeup and no jewelry. And There's all kinds of denominations and movements that have given themselves over, I think, to a wrong understanding of what Paul means here. Because it's very clear he does not just have clothing in mind. In fact, at the end of this section in verse 10, he says, 
adorn yourselves this way with what is proper for those who profess godliness. And then what does he tell you to adorn yourselves with in verse 10? With good works. Paul's not just talking about what you wear. It is more about how you carry yourself. The same thing goes for Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Okay, so there's verse 3. Don't let your adorning be external. Don't let it be just that. But what does Peter say in verse 4? But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And and there again you think, well, we're talking about clothing and hair and jewelry. Okay, but on the other side, what are we really talking about? Gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit. Adorning yourself with those things. Godly women do not seek attention for themselves. Nor do godly men, for that matter. Godly women do not seek attention for their bodies. For their sexuality. Godly women do not seek the lustful eyes of men or anyone, for that matter. A godly woman seeks first to honor God with a Godward life. And next, to adorn or to carry herself in a way that shows that. In other words, your adorning is not simply your clothing, your jewelry, or your accessories. But your adorning as women of God ought to be righteousness a gentle spirit, and good works. Women of First Baptist Church this morning, I want to encourage you to be a model, not of your body, sensuality, or your clothing, but be a model of God himself. Through your life, through your heart, the Bible tells us to shine, not because of jewelry and gold, but shine because of the fire of God's spirit that is a light within you. Stand out, not because of your clothing or your apparel, but because of the fragrance of Christ that floods from you to those around you. Attract, not because of your sexuality and your fleshly appeal, but because of the radiance of the love of Jesus overflowing from you. Now, number three today, God's order in creation and the church. It's important that we stress both because that's what Paul stresses. God's order in creation, God's order in the church. And God points us there through the apostle Paul today. These last couple of verses uh, have been controversial for the past couple decades, not the least of which in our own Southern Baptist Convention, which had our own wars in the 70s and 80s over the ordination of women, women pastors, women preachers, and uh, interestingly enough today in our same convention we're dealing with those same questions and same issues again. But the real question of it all is, listen to me, the real question of it all is, Will we be faithful to God's word or not? As we come to this passage today, you have two options in front of you. This is either God's word that is to be submitted to and obeyed, 
or it is not God's word, in which case you can go do what you want. Those are the only two options. Because as we see what God directs us here in the church, men and women, we hear the inspired and errant counsel of God for what he wants in our homes and what he wants in our churches. Look at verse uh, 11. Building off of what we said in verses 9 and 10, Paul says in verse 11, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Well, okay. Okay, Paul. First century Paul. Let a woman learn quietly with all submission. Without the raising of hands, just in your your spirit, your mind. how How many of you honestly find that immediately jarring? Strange sounding, antiquated, outdated. Why don't I ask you a second question? Do we not find the same kind of command for men in Scripture? Hebrews 13, verse 17, talking about men and women under the leadership of those in the church, what verbs does it use of all the people in the church? Obey. Submit. And so before we find this uniquely offensive for women, as if it was just directed at you, let's think about what God says to all the people of God who submit and obey their church leadership as they preach the word of God. Let's think about all of us as Christians as we submit to the headship and the lordship of Jesus. This is a command for everyone. Paul just here happens to be dealing specifically in the church with women. This is an example, women, to your children, to younger women in the church, to other members in the church. It's an example of what we saw in Luke 7 with Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening. Martha toiling in the background, working, serving, Mary, kneeling at the feet of Jesus and listening, submitting to her Lord. And what does Jesus say about Mary? She's chosen the better portion. What did we see earlier in Ephesians chapter 5? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his church and is himself his Savior. Then husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Two commands, two roles, wives lovingly submitting to the godly leadership of a loving husband and then husbands sacrificially loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This is not ugly. This isn't controversial. This isn't sexist. This isn't backwards. This is beautiful. This is a picture of Christ and his church. A husband and his bride. And that same thing should be modeled as we come into the local church. Men leading with prayer and holiness, and women modeling godliness. Love and grace and mercy in both. And part of that submission brings us to roles within the church in verse 12. I do not then permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. God has called men to lead in their homes. 
God has called men to lead in the church. Now, I want you to understand, face value, this, these, these are two commands. There are two prohibitions here. Because what you will try, what you will hear people try to do is to make it one prohibition to, to sort of soften it, to allow for things that the Bible does not allow. For instance, they will say, well, what this really means is that women should not teach so as to usurp authority. And so you'll have churches that might allow a woman preacher or even a woman pastor so long as she is under the rule and authority of other male pastors or preachers. The Bible does not allow us that interpretation because the Bible gives us two specific prohibitions. I do not permit a woman to teach or, secondly, to exercise authority over a man. Women should not teach men in the, con the context of the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. Secondly, women should not exercise authority in an official capacity as elder, pastor, overseer. Now, I want to remind you that this is not about value. This is not about dignity or even, even secular roles. We don't go out there. That's not what this is about. God made man, male and female, in his own image. God gave man, male and female, dominion over all creation. There was no difference there. He didn't say, Adam, I made you in my image, and Eve sort of in my image. He didn't say, Adam, you have all dominion, and Eve, you have whatever Adam gives you. He said, I make you both, male and female, in my image. I give you both dominion over all creation. Nor does this say that women should not serve, women should not minister, or women should not teach at all. Think about Timothy's own mother and grandmother. You can find words about them in 2 Timothy 1 and 3. Paul commends them for their teaching Timothy the word of God. And now this young pastor in Ephesus has his mother and his grandmother to thank. How about Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18? There was a man preacher, Apollos, doing a pretty good job. But Priscilla and his wife, or Aquila and his wife Priscilla pull Apollos aside. And what does it say? They taught him how to preach the gospel better. A man and his wife, not publicly, not in the ears of all the congregation, but to the side, Apollos, you're a great preacher. You speak well, you've got all your theology right, but here's some better understanding. The Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 was not given to just men. Go and make disciples, men. Go teach, men. It was given to all the disciples of God. Paul tells the whole church in Colossians 3.16 to teach and admonish one another. In the, the non-official capacity as preacher, teacher, pastor, Sunday school teacher, whatever... We are to teach and admonish one another. There's no direct command or prohibition for men and women there. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, women can both pray and prophesy in the local church. Now what that verb prophesy means, you can go back and listen to a few Wednesday nights ago. We talked about charismatic gifts. We won't discuss that here today. What does that prophecy mean? What does that prayer mean? We're not talking about it today. I don't know how to tell you today, but women can pray. Women can prophesy in the gathering of the local church. Phoebe served as a servant of the church. 
Romans chapter 16, it calls her a servant. You know what that word is? The word is deacon. In some official capacity, Phoebe served the church. So women can lead, they can evangelize, they can contribute, they can explain, they can admonish, they can exhort. But in the official capacity, and listen, this includes both the role of pastor and the office of pastor, what a pastor is and what a pastor does, in that official capacity, elder, overseer, pastor, God calls men. Again, not because women are somehow lesser than men, but because of God's design and creation. Just as Christ is the head of his church, the husband is the head of his wife, when we come into the church, we see that same picture modeled for us. And you can see ever increasingly clearly how in the world this stands out and shows a picture to them of what the family is and what God's design is. Not just in the church, but think about all the ramifications for marriage, for sexuality, for reproduction, for the family. All of it is pictured here. We say, well, that's not politically correct, and someone has told me that. One of another direct quote I've heard is, well, that's Paul, and that's not Jesus. Now, that has all kinds of problems that I don't have time to go into today. But when Paul speaks, Jesus speaks. Let's just say it that way. Well, times change. This was just cultural for Paul. You know, first century Paul, first century Jewish guy, of course he's going to say this. Paul does not give us those options. Because in verse 13, in verse 14, Paul ties this not just to his own culture and not just to the norms of his society, but he ties it to creation itself. Look at verse 13 and 14. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, Paul is not suggesting, well, after all, Adam was just better because Adam was first. I mean, what what kind of stupid argument would that be? That's not what Paul is suggesting here. Both created in God's image. Both given dominion over creation. But in the order and the design that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam is made head and Eve is created helper to Adam. That is the order. That is the design. And when the serpent comes in Genesis 3, what does he do? Adam was created first. He's the head. Eve is the helper. When the serpent comes in, where does he go first? The head, Adam, first? No. He goes to the woman first. And instead of deceiving the man forthrightly, Satan undercuts Adam's role and his call. Paul is not suggesting, well, that Eve, because she's a woman, was just so much more easy a target for the serpent. She was so much more easily duped. Adam is there with her. Adam is duped too. Satan could have very well gone after Adam, and it seems if he would have fallen as well. But Satan wants from the beginning to subvert and to twist and to attack God's design. And so he goes after the woman first. 
One of the commentaries I read studying for this sermon, the Christ-centered commentary on 1 Timothy, says, Adam sat back and did nothing, and God's design was distorted. In short, sin entered the world when man abdicated his God-given responsibility to lead. So even as we're reading about God's words to women here, we see these implications for men. Men, where are you? Are you leading in your home? Are you leading your wife? Are you leading in your church? And so we see that God's good design in creation, God's good design in the home and the family is also God's good design for the church. And Paul wants the people of the church through Timothy, their pastor, to see Satan's schemes to see Satan's attacks on the family and on gender, on sexuality. Paul wants them to see that and to reject it in the light of the truth of God's word. And Paul, in verse 15, ties it all back to the curse itself. Look at verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now there's a good puzzling verse to end the sermon on, isn't it? She'll be saved through childbearing. What in the world does this mean? Well, let's state clearly what it does not mean. It does not mean that all women are good for is bearing children. That is not what it says here. It is also not saying that women are saved somehow by giving birth. Else, what would happen to all the godly women and believers who don't give birth for whatever reason? It is not suggesting either of those things. Now, some point back to Genesis 3.15, and you remember that that part of the fall and the the curse, there was this offer of hope. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed. Remember, and, and her seed shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And so we had this picture that uh, there's going to come an offspring from the woman that will defeat Satan forever. Okay, maybe that's what Paul is talking about. Through childbearing, eventually there will come a child who will defeat the serpent. And I think that's there. Sure, that's there. The Lord Jesus comes, the son of Mary, and he defeats the serpent. Amen. That's the gospel. But I think there's more than that here. Women, mothers, I always kind of draw back when I start talking about this because whether I'm sympathetic or not, there's a, empathetic or not, there's always this desire on, on behalf of mothers to say, you don't even know. Was there pain in childbirth? Physical pain? Emotional pain? Spiritual pain? And so when God in Genesis chapter 3.16 says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing, women in that moment... You gave birth, did you feel the weight of the curse? Maybe you did curse in that moment because of the weight of the curse, that immense physical, emotional, spiritual pain that's there. I think that's what Paul is pointing to. He's reminding us of what God said in Genesis 3.16, I will multiply your pain in childbirth. And then he says, yet she will be saved even through that if they... All women of God continue in faith and love and holiness. In short, 
even though we see and feel the effects of the fall in childbearing. It is even through those pains of the fall and the curse that God brings salvation and God brings hope. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, we we don't have time to turn there, but in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about creation and awaiting the coming of God and, and the suffering in the world. And Paul talks about creation as if creation itself is groaning with the pains of childbirth. And he uses that imagery of a woman in childbirth and the pain that's associated with labor. And he pictures creation as groaning in that same way, waiting for the hope that is coming in Jesus, waiting for the restoration of all things. And so the picture that Paul paints here, listen, that even in the pains of childbirth, even through the curse and the fall, there is hope and there is redemption. And even as godly women, just as godly women are saved through those pains, everyone who is in Christ is promised salvation and hope even through your pain. And so Paul would say to us today, whatever your pain, whatever your sorrow, whatever your suffering, whatever your problem, they are temporary for the children of God. And even in that pain, in that sorrow, God has promised you joy in Christ. And one day, although we groan with creation as if in childbirth, there will be relief and the beauty and the joy just, when that, just as when that child arrives and all the pain is erased with the joy of that moment, when Christ returns, all will be joy in that moment. God's plan, his design, it's beautiful, it's holy, it's full of hope. And although the culture around us shames even motherhood, I mean, can you imagine? You hear the insanity of our culture and the language we use where we don't even say mother anymore. I don't even know what a birthing person is. Mothers, women, give birth to children. So we shame motherhood. We shame women. We shame and mock God's design. In doing so, we attack God's role for the home, for the church. We fail to see God's beautiful plan of joy even through suffering. As the church of Jesus, who is our head and our Lord, we must stand against this tide. Our statement of faith is clear. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is very clear on sexuality, gender, and gender roles within the church. It's very clear. You can go find the Baptist Faith and Message online anywhere. That's our church's statement of faith, and it's clear. The Bible is clear. The question is, are we clear? Men, are you fulfilling your God-given role in the home and the church to lead and to serve? For your wife, your children, your grandchildren? Women, are you marked by that quiet and gentle spirit, submitting to your husbands in love, teaching your children, teaching other young women? And to both, 
Are you modeling godliness in your homes and in your churches so as to obey God for the sake of the gospel? First Baptist Church, I'll tell you why this is so important. Because in every, research it, in every church, in every denomination, in every movement, where this has been compromised, gender roles, God's design, the family, sexuality, whatever it is, wherever that has been compromised in whatever church, denomination, or movement it is, watch me and go research it and see the effects yourself. Wherever that is compromised, it is not the last pillar to fall. And those falls will lead eventually to that denomination, that church, that movement's death. So will we be a church founded on the rock of God's inerrant word, even, listen, even when the world hates it? Will we stand for the sanctity of biblical marriage, biblical sexuality, biblical gender, biblical life? Then we must start there. You must start in your homes. We must start here in our churches. You know, God started with the men. Paul started with the men. And I'll come back to the men. Where are you, men? In our church, in your families, where are you? Abdicating your responsibility to someone else? Not fulfilling your role as God's leader, protector? Spiritually, biblically, in your home, with your family, with your children? It must start there before it can ever take root here. So even as we as a church pray, oh God, raise up men to serve as deacons. Give us good godly men for pastors. Give us good godly men to teach. Even as we pray that, we must pray, oh God, make me a man of God for my home, for my church, for my family, for my children, for my wife. Do it for me. Men, where are you? Are you leading? Are you serving? Women, are you modeling that godliness for others? This is God's design. This is God's plan. And it's beautiful. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us, even in a culture and a society that mocks everything we say here today. Even though the media and everything around us says the exact opposite, we see logic, we see sense, we see reason when we hear your word. We see the beautiful design of the family, the beautiful design of your church. God, we ultimately see the beauty of the picture of Christ as the head of his body, his bride of which we're a part because of his love for us. God, today, break our hearts and break our wills and break our minds over what we think, about what we want, about our opinions. Help us to submit to your truth, your plan, your design, so that people might see the gospel in our families, in our lives. People might know who you are by what we represent. That our church might stand firm on your word.
We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.